Well, I know tonight is a huge, huge game between the Redskins and the Cowboys. Uh, Last Sunday, the 23rd, was a huge day in my family because um, I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm a diehard Cincinnati Bengals football fan, and my wife, God bless her, she only really has one flaw, and that is that she's from Pittsburgh, and uh, she is a diehard Pittsburgh Steelers fan, and uh, so after church, we, we actually piled into the car and drove up to Pittsburgh, where her family is from, and we had the, uh, the game on the radio as we were driving, and as a rule, we don't watch the Cincinnati Bengals and Pittsburgh Steelers, we don't watch that game together. It's just not good for our marriage. This is a general, and I'm not joking. I mean, seriously, like, I leave. I don't watch the game with my wife. So we're driving up, and uh, I was a little bit nervous about how that would all go. So, so we get to Pittsburgh, literally, for, for those of you who, uh, who remember, the game was really close. It was tied right to, the, right to the very end. And we pulled into my in-law's driveway two plays before the Bengals uh, went to kick, to try and kick the field goal to win the game. Ran up the, the path into the door, and, and literally I'm standing there with, like, my wife and her entire extended family. Like, that, the room is just packed. Everyone in Steelers gear, you know. It was like walking into Satan's lair, you know. <laughs> and so, so I'm there, and we're watching the Bengals line up for this, this final field goal, which, by some miracle of God, they actually made, and, and they won the game, okay? They won the game. Now, this was unbelievable. For those of you who aren't football fans who don't know, the Cincinnati Bengals for the last two decades, have arguably been the worst franchise of any sports team in any sport. I mean, th- literally that bad, okay? And so I've suffered through, through all that. Now, the Pittsburgh Steelers, on the other hand, actually have been like the winningest franchise. They've actually won the most Super Bowls of any NFL team. They've won six Super Bowls. And so we never beat the Steelers. Never, ever. It never happened. And... Um, so we finally won. And in that moment, I felt like I was going to explode. And, and here's why. For all the time that, that I've known my wife, which um, just, I mean, forever, every time the Steelers beat the Bengals, she does not gloat. She doesn't say one word. She doesn't get ugly. She doesn't talk smack. She doesn't rub it in my face. I mean, nothing. She is so gracious in victory. And our whole family is actually the exact same way, never rubbing it in. They never say a word to me, right? So the field goal sails through the uprights. And I'm sitting there in this packed room. (laughs) And literally, I ran out of the house. I ran out of the front door and into the front yard, and I screamed my face off. And for the rest of the day, I was so proud of myself because for the rest of the day, I didn't say one word. I didn't gloat. I didn't say anything about it. They said they were all mad. You know, they said, good job. Because basically, this was a chance for the Bengals to get into the playoffs and kick the Steelers out of the playoffs. It was a huge game, just like the Redskins game is tonight. So everything was cool until the next morning. The next morning, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette paper comes. And it was the most beautiful spread I've ever seen in my life. I did cut it out. Um, it says, Steelers pass up shot to make the postseason. And you've got, it's hard to see, but you've got the Bengals celebrating on the one side. And the reason I didn't scan it is because I wanted to embellish my story a little bit. Um, and then you've got some Steelers over here just crying like little babies because they're so, 
devastated. And I see this thing, and I, and I, can't, I can't contain myself any longer. I mean, at this point, I'm just, I, I can't. I, I can't help it. So I'm, I'm looking at this, this beautiful page, and then I see it says, late pickoff allows Bengals to lock up final AFC postseason berth. Big Ben, who was their quarterback, Big Ben says, I blew it. And at that, I just turned to my lovely wife, and I said, you blew it! It was like 20 years of just like pure, you know, just, I just, I just couldn't. And as soon as I did that, I just realized, man, like that was, I, I got, I got the look. You, guys, you, you know the look. Only a woman can give the look. Your mother, your girlfriend, wife, right? They, they, they don't say anything, but the look, it's the look of death. And so she gives me the look, doesn't say a word, and I just felt terrible the rest of the day. Terrible. Then after that, I was fine. I totally got over it. It was awesome. I had a great time up in Pittsburgh. But here's the thing. <laughs> That's enough out of you, Kurt. Thank you. Here, I'll let you have this now. That's for you, brother. All right. So in that moment, as bad as I felt, um, there was a group of people we're going to be talking about today, and you take the feeling that I had, and you multiply that like a million times over, and that's how they felt. And that is what we're going to talk about today. We are in the Gospel of Mark. We are finishing out our series through the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark 15 and going into 16, and um, we're going to read, starting in verse 42 of chapter 15. But before we do, can we say a word of prayer? Uh, God, we just want to say thank you so much for this morning, for allowing us to be here, to come and to sing songs of praise to you and to open up your word. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to each one of us through your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Starting in verse 42, Mark 15, it says, It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Okay, there's a lot of stuff going on here. Let's stop and get everybody caught up on what's happening. Okay, it's the day before the Sabbath. It's Friday, the Friday that Jesus was crucified. He's nailed to the cross, okay? So Jesus dies the afternoon of Good Friday, and now evening is approaching. Jesus is dead. And this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, who was on the council, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was this powerful Jewish council that was actually the council responsible for getting Jesus arrested and bringing him before Pilate, okay? But Joseph was actually a sympathizer of Jesus. So it says he went to Pilate. Pilate was the one who, over, you know, he was responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. And it says he asked Pilate for Jesus' body. Verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. Summoning the centurion, now the centurion was the Roman soldier who would have been overseeing Jesus' crucifixion. So summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb 
cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb, and it says that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus was laid. Now, what is far more interesting to me about this passage than who was there and helped to bury Jesus, what's far more interesting than who was there is who wasn't there. Who, for the last three years, has been following Jesus everywhere he went? Who, for the last three years, has been inseparably linked to Jesus? The disciples. Where in the world are the disciples? Well, what we've read about just a few chapters earlier in the Gospel of Mark is that the night that Jesus gets arrested, the disciples freak out. They're afraid for their lives. They're afraid that they're going to get arrested. Something terrible is going to happen to them. And so they scatter. They're nowhere to be found. Well, at this point in the story, it's Saturday. Saturday was the Sabbath. Sabbath started Friday evening, went until Saturday evening. And so Joseph of Arimathea, he prepares the body and gets the body buried before the Sabbath starts because you couldn't you couldn't do work on the Sabbath. But I want you to think about this for a minute. So here are these disciples, okay? They've been with Jesus for the last three years, 24-7. Jesus is dead. And they completely abandoned him in his hour of need. You know what happened on the Sabbath? Nothing. You didn't work. You didn't do anything. Basically, it was just a time to pray, to be still, to rest, to think and reflect. Imagine what was going through these disciples' minds as they sat there on that Saturday, that Sabbath day. Imagine how terrible they felt. The disciples, it's Saturday, okay? So the disciples didn't know what we know today, right? We know how the story ends. We know what happens on Sunday. It's Easter Sunday and Jesus rises from the dead and there's the resurrection. See, we know that. The disciples didn't know that. And Jesus had had tried to explain what was going to happen and it was so mind-blowing to them that they couldn't wrap their minds around it. They couldn't get it. So here they are and all they know is that Jesus, this, this incredible miracle worker, this incredible teacher, this incredible awaited Messiah is dead, and they didn't do anything about it. They didn't know what we know. They didn't know that for the resurrection to take place, that death actually had to occur. They didn't know that in order for Jesus to be be able to overcome death, he had to face it head on so that all of us would be able to overcome death by faith in him. They didn't know that this was part of God's plan, but we know it is today. See, for us to have life, there first had to be death. Pretty paradoxical. So here's a question that I want you to ponder as we are closing out the year 2012, and we're looking to a new year. And as John mentioned, many of us have resolutions, things we're thinking about, new things that we want to do, take on and tackle in 2013. 
But here's a question before we get there. As we close out 2012, what needs to end in 2012 before a new thing can begin in 2013? What do you need to give a proper burial to as we close out this year? Is there something in your life that you're struggling with? Is there something in your life that keeps tripping you up? Is it a habit that you keep falling into? Is it a relationship that you know you have to do something about? Is it an attitude or a mindset that is constantly bringing you down or causing you problems? Is there something that you need to bury as we close out 2012 so that we can hit 2013 with a full head of steam and live the life that God wants us to live? What do you need to give a proper burial to as we close out? Think of how cool it would be if that thing that just constantly nags at you and trips you up and causes you problems, think about what if you could say 2012 was the year that I finally buried that thing, that I turned the page on that, that deal in my life. How cool would that be? What do you need to give a proper burial to as we close out this year? So as bad as those disciples felt, you knew who felt the worst of all? It was one of the disciples named Peter. See, Jesus had gathered all his disciples around the last time they were together. They had, this, they had this last supper, this last meal together. And Jesus said to him, he said, you know what, guys, I just want to let you know that you're all going to fall away. You're all, you're all going to desert me in my time of need. And Peter stood up. Peter was always the first one to stand up and say something. And so he stood up and he said, I'll never do that, Jesus. Never, never, never. I will never desert you. Even if everybody else does, I never will. And then Jesus says, actually, you're going to in a big time way. And Peter said, Mark 14, 31, he said, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And what does he do that very night? You guys know, Peter is famous for doing something three times, right? He's probably, probably his most well-known thing. That night, he denies Jesus three separate times. People saying that they think he's with Jesus, but he knows Jesus. And he denies emphatically three times before the rooster crows for that night to be over. Now, you got to remember, Peter is the leader of the disciples. He's the leader. He's the one that made the boldest proclamation. So you can imagine how devastated, how completely wrecked Peter must have been. And this is what to me, what happens next shows just how cool our God is. It's amazing, amazing stuff. I'm going to read Mark 16, verses 1 through 7. And there's a couple words in there that you might never have noticed before, but they're so awesome. It starts like this. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. This probably happened on Saturday evening. After sundown, very early on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, Easter Sunday, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe 
sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. They saw an angel of God. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples, and catch these two little words. They're awesome. Tell his disciples, and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Incredible story. Read this story so many times. Story of them coming to the empty tomb and seeing the angel. He's risen. Oh, it's so great. We hear this every Easter. But check out those two little words. Go tell the disciples. Oh, and one other thing. Go tell Peter. Don't forget to tell Peter. God specifically gives instructions to the angel to tell Peter by name. You see, God knew how devastated, how completely destroyed Peter was in that moment. And so he specifically gives a shout out to Peter. How awesome is that? Here's the deal, you guys. As we close out this year, 2012, and, and we think about that thing that holds us back, we think about that thing that we need to bury. When we think about that, there's a lot of guilt that comes along with that. There's a lot of shame that comes along with that when we really sit and reflect on it. Sometimes it comes because we have such a hard time burying it, or we'll bury it and then it kind of rears its ugly head again, and we keep struggling with the same thing. We have such a difficult time overcoming it. There's a lot of guilt there. And even when we do finally bury that thing, we still have a lot of guilt that's associated with the fact that we did it in the first place and we shouldn't have done it. Well, those two little words, and Peter, make sure you don't forget about Peter. Those words that God gives to Peter remind us that no matter how great our failure, no matter how many our faults, no matter what our shortcomings are, no matter how bad we blow it, God never, ever gives up on us. What's amazing to me, as I read through the New Testament, particularly through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where we see Jesus and his life and his ministry, is it's actually those who feel the furthest from God, who feel the least worthy of God's love, that God seems the most crazy and intense about pursuing and reminding of his love. If you have never read Luke chapter 15, we're not going to look at it today, but if you've never read Luke chapter 15, or you're in a place in your life where you feel guilt, or you feel shame, or you feel like, how could God love me for you know, some of the things that I struggle with, you have to check out Luke chapter 15. Because Luke chapter 15, it's these parables where it shows God's heart to pursue those who are actually the furthest from him, that feel the least worthy of his love. God is relentless, running after those of us who feel in this terrible place of guilt and shame. And he seeks us out. This is what we see with his interaction with Peter. He seeks us out. He calls us by name to let us know that we're his, and that we're loved, and that we're forgiven. 
So as we close out this year, 2012, I want you to reflect on that question. And just a second, the music team's going to come up, and uh, they're going to play one last song for us called Never Once, which is a great reminder of God's unfailing love for us. But as we close out 2012, what is it that you, you need to put an end to this year so that you can hit 2013 in full stride, living the life that God wants you to live? If you're here this morning and you're just struggling, deeply struggling with something, and, and you just you have such a hard time burying it, I want to encourage you, as we move into this last song, to, to go over to our prayer wall over here and have someone pray with you today. I'll, I'll be over there, and a number of folks from our prayer team will be over there. We would love to pray with you. What a great way to kind of finish out this year and move in to 2013. So team's going to come up. I'm going to pray for us, and um, that's how we'll close out. If you guys would join me. Lord God, we just want to say thank you so much for um, coming to this earth, taking on human flesh, and ultimately dying for us so that we, through faith in you, Jesus, would be made righteous. As we bid farewell to this year, help us to figure out what it is that we need to bury whatever it is that's tripping us up, that's causing pain to us or to others, Lord, help us to, to be able to say 2012 was the year that I put that thing to bed. Many of us need tremendous help because that's the one thing that's the thorn in our side. That's the one thing that just seems to be able to get the best of us time and time and time again. God, we need your supernatural help to overcome. We thank you for the great reminder that it didn't end on a cross. It didn't end in a tomb. But it ended with an angel saying, he's risen. We thank you that you have overcome the grave, that you have overcome death. We thank you for the most awesome reminder, God, that if you can overcome death, what can't you overcome? You can overcome anything in this life. Our struggles, our trials, they're nothing compared to overcoming death. So let us approach your throne with incredible faith this morning. Even if we've prayed for something a hundred times, a thousand times, that we might come boldly one more time and this might be the time, this might be the day that we bury that thing one time and for all. And we thank you, God, that that guilt and that shame has no part with you. We thank you that your word says in Romans, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And we declare that there is no guilt, there's no shame. It's all your grace, it's all your love. And never once, never once were we alone in this fight. 
So, Lord, as we stand and as we sing to you, we come with all of our requests. We come with all the things on our hearts and our minds. And we just ask God for you to move in a mighty way. We thank you and we praise your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.